Thaddeus Ellenberg presents Casual Friday Written and read by Thaddeus Ellenberg Eighteen holes at Myers Creek, the front nine. Nestled majestically against the Blue Ridge Mountains in the southeast corner of the Virginia Piedmont, the Myers Creek Golf Club has served as golf's most treasured and revered institute for nearly 100 years. Like the links of Crab Hill or the Harbor Course at West Sag, the history of this 7,135-yard standard of golf excellence is as rich and immortal as the soil beneath its lush fairways. Not to mention its club members, with an emphasis on immortal and a nod to premier healthcare. The course and its surrounding premises were built by famed designer Pat Lundy in 1921 on the site of a thriving bird sanctuary. It boasts a number of architectural features, including the lavishly decorated clubhouse of old world charm, where reputable golfer Bobby Thorson famously tried breaking his cummerbund by expanding his stomach during his speech at the 1956 Champions Dinner. Or the commemorative Pinkerton Bridge, which leads golfers from the 18th fairway to the 18th green, where four-time champions tournament winner Greg Simon, during his final Champions Tournament appearance, graciously acknowledged the gallery with his signature peace sign, before seven putting the hole and striking his caddy in the face with an egg salad sandwich. Still, Myers Creek most celebrated and triumphant moments remain on the course, richly steeped in golfing lore. And with each hole named after a local bird, this 72-part time capsule packs quite the history. Hole number one, Virginia Mockingbird. A slight dogleg right, this opening par four offers a superb vista with an elevated tee and has without question witnessed its fair share of disastrous drives. One in particular came from the distinguished World War II Admiral Norman R. McAllister during a late afternoon round with President Dwight D. Eisenhower. After opting for a second helping of roast pork ham with apple jelly, two bowls of butterscotch ice cream and four cups of coffee during a luncheon earlier in the day, the other members in the party were none too surprised when Admiral McAllister waddled up to his ball wheezing. He took three giant whiffs before losing his footing and was sent tumbling down the mound end over end, goose-stepping between somersaults. Eisenhower let out a bellow as the stoic naval commander landed in the center of the fairway like a lawn dart with his head buried in the ground. A stickler for rules, Eisenhower insisted that Admiral McAllister not take a mulligan and play his second shot where it landed. Eisenhower then pulled rank and ordered Admiral McAllister to take said shot without removing his head from the ground. And so, with the posture of an ostrich, the undaunted war hero took a blind whack at his ball and to the astonishment of the other players, landed it a foot from the pen. For the remainder of the round, President Eisenhower and the other members of his decorated foursome played each shot in a bent-over position with their heads swinging between their legs. After the men completed their round the following spring, they complained of severe headaches and an overwhelming urge to walk on their hands. 
Hole number two, Fox Sparrow. A straight 520-yard par 5, Fox Sparrow is one of the more difficult holes on the front nine, even without the windmill, a decision made in 1942 in favor of the war effort and a shortage of aircraft propellers. The difficulty of Fox Sparrow comes from its undulating elevation and extreme slope to the left, that and the fact that it sits downwind from the Caramel Candy Kitchen. During the 1980s Celebrity Pro-Am, Comedian Will Sheplin, best known for his body film parodies and reputation as an unabashed playboy, was drawn first and paired with the wholesome straight-laced champion golfer Ted Noonan. After missing their second and third shots left of the green, with Noonan's and a pin-high bunker, the gallery readied themselves with stirring anticipation for a -a once-in-a-lifetime display of Noonan's skilled short game. As the 1978 Player of the Year stepped onto the sand and addressed his ball, he heard a young woman giggling from the gallery. He turned and saw to his surprise his partner, Mr. Sheplin, with his arms around a bosomy, dark-haired spectator who was using the comical Casanova's three-wood as a pogo stick. With his partner's noisy nuzzling in the background, the peeved yet focused professional took his shot with authority and stood poised in a shower of sand as his ball skipped past the pen and rolled off the back of the green. Noonan was livid. When he went to confront his partner, Sheplin was all but missing. Noonan's caddy informed him that the comedian and his buxom fan had escaped the gallery and ducked behind a large bush. When asked which bush, the caddy commented, the one that's bearing lacy undergarments. Shortly thereafter, Sheplin withdrew from the tournament and retired to his fairway side cottage along with his new, much shapelier partner, where he hung a little card on the front door that read, Hole in One. Hole number three, White-Breasted Sapsucker. A short, drivable par four, this hole not only yields low scores, but contains a villainous history that dates back to the days of Prohibition. Chased from the mountains by clever and quiet-toed lawmen, especially when on their tippies, bootleggers sought cover for themselves and their legal stills in the valley below. And it was here infamous moonshiner Baggy Britches tunneled under the third green and built his now legendary third at Myers Creek still. For two years, the cunning distiller operated without detection under the green's root system, producing gallons upon gallons of his tasty hooch. Sadly, productivity was halted when a group of golfers witnessed a thin column of smoke rising out of the cup. When the smoke subsided, the curious golfers peered into the hole and found a single eyeball staring back at them. Startled, the men leapt into each other's arms, one by one, until they were stacked four tall. Baggy quickly fled the still out a secret entrance behind the green, a trap door covered in sod and concealed with a fake deer carpeted in a polished fur that was donated from the chin of Mrs. Bridges. When the marshal and his men entered the hidden still, they found a three-volume manuscript entitled Cooking with Britches, several crude drawings of what appeared to be plans for an illegal muffin shop, and 45 gallons of top-shelf shine. As a memento, the feds presented a gallon of Baggy's homebrew to the esteemed golf club. Shortly thereafter, then-chairman Almer Ankins placed the fermented contraband on display inside the clubhouse where it remains today. Of course, its proof has diminished slightly over the years, courtesy of countless late-night nips from the club's more prominent members who have all admitted to replenishing the bottle with whatever clear liquid was readily available, cough syrup and denture soak. Hole number four, Crested Wren. A breathtaking par three surrounded by eastern redbud trees, 
with water at the front of the green. This half-eight iron or full nine isn't a particularly difficult hole, unless it offers its notorious Saturday pen placement. To go with this flag, a golfer would surely have to have a combination of nerve, skill, and luck, or a meatloaf sandwich named after them at the nearby Lake Piedmont Mental Hospital. There have only been a total of 16 recorded aces, or holes in one, on Crested Wren during tournament play in the club's century-old history. The most notable occurring in 1926 at the Myers Creek Invitational, from golf legend and pioneer in the field of Pete, particularly with his wildly successful invention of the steam-powered compost cannon, Angus McSwiggan. The now-memorialized tournament occurred during a pivotal time in golf history, as steel club shafts were being adopted by the game's most respected professionals. However, McSwiggan believed in the tried-and-true wooden shafts, specifically hickory, and was determined to prove their superiority. After a pretty up-and-down first two days, McSwiggan's third round had a particularly dismal start, with two four-putts on holes one and two, and a disastrous eight on the third. Regrettably, McSwiggan was a bit of a hothead, known for taking out his anger on his golf clubs, and once on a bowl of red cabbage, which he consumed entirely in a fit of rage. By the time he reached Crested Wren, he had snapped the wooden shaft of every golf club in his bag, as well as several from the bag of his playing partner and the flagstick on number three. Some of the clubs he broke twice. When McSwiggan squared up to his ball, his club of choice had already been reduced to a mere nub. On his knees, the gallery fell silent as he eyed his shot, drew back what was left of his club, and took a big one-handed scoop at the ball. Spectators and reporters alike exclaimed with surprise as the ball took flight and carried the water, then landed on the green and took a single hop straight into the cup. The shot came to be known as the Miracle on Crested Wren, not to be confused with the 1972 incident on Crested Wren, where an unnamed boy brought back to life a dead deer by simply laying his hand upon it and was later asked by the head groundskeeper to lay his hand upon several stubborn brown patches in the fairway of 15. Myers Creek recognized McSwiggan's shot with a humorously ironic steel plaque, which they placed at the tee box of his timeless achievement. Hole number five, American Pintail. Especially beautiful in early spring when the marigolds blush with pink blossoms, American Pentail is a par-4 dogleg left that offers one of the more troublesome second shots. After a forced layup off the tee, golfers are met with a challenging downhill second with an elevated green that slopes drastically to the right, not unlike the club's long-held stance on female membership. In 2009, Myers Creek opened the doors to its first female member, Congresswoman Deborah Roberts after the club's policies were rebuked by several prominent women's organizations. The Congresswoman's first day on the premises as a card-carrying member was a mostly welcoming one that culminated with a friendly nine holes between herself and 1999-2012 club chairman Dickie Jones, who over the years had been quite outspoken in his opposition of female members. Not to mention Sasquatches, which he felt was the next impending threat against club desirables. After playing the first four holes from the Red Tees, or Ladies Tees, in a celebrated act of defiance and equality, the congresswoman teed up her ball from one of the men's tees. The chairman was outraged. He scrunched his face and stomped his feet before dropping to the ground and throwing a full-blown tantrum. His caddy placated him with candy and pleasing stock market quotes. It was a revolutionary moment in golf history. From then on, Congresswoman Roberts only played from the men's tees and lobbied exponentially for a reform of tee colors. 
not wanting to completely abolish the use of multiple tees, considering the different skill levels of competitive players, or handicap, language the hellbent crusader promised was next on the docket, the congresswoman proposed changing the red tees to magenta with a hint of plum, and the white tees to anything but. I think we've seen enough white for a while, the congresswoman responded in a major golf magazine. I say we change the color of the balls while we're at it, but one thing at a time. After two years of in-clubhouse politics, Chairman Jones attempted to spearhead the congresswoman's efforts with a radical and unprecedented proposal or wily last-effort scheme, whichever favored him more in the history books. Jones's plan was to give each hole on the course two separate greens, a men's green and a much shorter women's green. The following day, Dickie Jones was asked to step down as chairman of Myers Creek and asked to leave through the kitchen. Hole number six, Blue Pheasant. Absent of water hazards and sand traps, this straight and slightly uphill par four is one of the easiest holes on the course, if you can keep your ball in the fairway. Lined with dense Leland Cypress trees, which can sometimes appear blue, hence the bird pairing, golfers collectively have spent hundreds of thousands, if not millions of hours on this largely detested hole searching for their golf balls. In an item originally listed in the always amusing off the tee section of a 1981 Myers Creek newsletter, Blue Pheasant contains one of the course's more bizarre and astonishing accounts, even more astonishing than the bank accounts of most tour professionals. In August of 1981, during a solo round, golfer Ryan Fitzpatrick hooked his drive into the anything but impenetrable wall of towering foliage on the left-hand side of the fairway. He entered the forest to look for his ball and was lost for nearly two years. He built a shelter fashioned from golf clubs and pleated khakis, and survived on granola bar rations and a pickle in a pouch he purchased from the clubhouse as a little treat for himself, even though his doctor directed him to avoid vinegar on account of his chronic acid reflux. When the rations ran out, he steamed one of his golf cleats in a stew of leather and wooden golf tees. He tallied the days stranded on his scorecard and, as is the case with most scorecards, fibbed a bit because he was just, you know, having fun. One day, the mentally and physically fatigued Fitzpatrick, in a go-for-broke situation, left his camp, but not before raking his footprints, and humped his golf bag filled with handcrafted provisions, including his already prepared second cleat, in an attempt to hike out of the harsh Virginia wilderness. Before nightfall, he reached the edge of the forest and found himself on the manicured grounds of a golf course. Unfortunately, it was the wrong golf course, and Fitzpatrick retreated back into the woods. He was found several days later by a Myers Creek foursome and their dog. When interviewed, the dog had no idea why he was there that day, but could sense someone was in trouble. Hole number seven, Northern Barn Owl. The longest par three on the course, Northern Barn Owl, requires mid to low iron precision if golfers want to make it to the green in one. A whopping 195 yards stretching slightly downhill and funneling toward an upsloping green surrounded by sand, this hole is typically associated with high-scoring blips on the scorecards of most amateurs. That is, unless you're the top amateur in the country. In 1997, Myers Creek hosted the National Amateur Championship for an eighth time in the tournament's revered history, the most by any golf club where the pro shop didn't sell firecrackers or fake IDs. The tournament favorite, NCU senior Matt Kindler, who, after hitting the low opening round, which included a bogey-free scorecard, an ace on 16, and a peanut butter and jelly sandwich with the crust cut off, 
shocked the golfing community when he tied the course record of 63 on the second day. Kindler made it to the final pairing, which consisted of 36 holes of match play, 9 in the morning and a full 18 in the afternoon, and later, if time permitted, a movie at the mall with friends. Kindler's opponent, who in his own right played an extremely impressive tournament that rivaled the performances of most active tour professionals at the time, was brought to tears when the seemingly unstoppable North Carolina champion all but swept the first 15 holes in an unparalleled showing of golf perfection. It was as if he couldn't miss and his ball knew exactly where to go. Kindler walked into the seventh with the score at Dormy, which means he was ahead by the same number of holes left to play and was poised to take the coveted title. After watching his opponent's ball hit the cart path and go rocketing out of bounds, it was nearly certain Kindler would be crowned the champion. It was only a matter of shooting par. With a four iron in hand, Kindler addressed the ball and took a dominating and aggressive swing and watched as his ball landed a foot under the flag. The gallery erupted in thunderous applause. As Kindler and his caddy walked up to the green, they were met with a standing ovation. It was a special honor that concluded abruptly as the congratulatory turned stunned gallery watched Kindler's ball inch up the green on its own, circle the flagstick several times, and drop into the cup. A committee of Myers Creek board members and a handful of eager R&D teams from the industry's largest companies launched an official investigation into what newspapers were calling Kindler's Magic Ball. When said ball was dissected, the committee, who expected to find a large magnet or a small motor, found to their surprise and horror a nest of 100 army ants. Kindler was disqualified from the tournament and later in a press statement admitted to not only using ant-filled balls during most of his victories, but moth larvae as well, a technique that he explained works on the same principle as Mexican jumping beans, which he also stated gave him the necessary edge over his competitors. In the weeks following the scandal, Kindler gave up the names of his suppliers and a SWAT team was dispatched to the Click Click Insect Ranch where multiple arrests were made, in addition to the seizing of thousands of incriminating documents and the recovery of countless hollowed-out golf balls and corking paraphernalia. Detectives released a statement to the media claiming that they had uncovered an apparent insect cheating ring that had trickled all the way down to the junior divisions. Hole number eight, Spotted Heron. Spotted Heron is a par four dogleg right that majestically wraps around the gorgeously serene Lake Lundy. With a stunning panorama of the surrounding mountains, golfers are met with a challenging tee shot to a small fairway target, of which most play it safe by choosing a low iron or three wood. It's the most nerve wracking tee shot on the course. Incidentally, the most nerve wracking shot off the course are the ones taken at the chairman's daughter. If a player can manage to keep their ball dry and land it in the fairway, they'll be rewarded with a much easier second shot courtesy of one of the largest greens on the course. It was here during the first round of a 2010 event that winless golfer and worst on the money list, Doug Lament, amazed the sporting world alike when he made an unbelievable 189-foot putt, the longest in Myers Creek history. As of the writing of this piece and certain publication within the pages of numerous respected golf journals and quite possibly the country's leading news magazines, the world's longest putt was recorded at 202 feet, although an attempt for an even longer putt began late last spring in Melbourne, Australia, and is expected to conclude next month when the ball reaches the hole. 
On-site commentators and once junior, now senior reporters all agree that the ball appears to be on the right line, but collectively fear it may have been overcooked. After Lament's remarkably rare feat, the small-time golfer soaked up as much of the praise as possible and continued to boast of his putt long after the accolades had died down. In clubhouses and locker rooms, Lament, to the annoyance of everyone, recounted the putt over and over with enthusiasm and increasing cockiness. From bathroom stalls and standing and checkout lines, to his wife's labor and their subsequent house foreclosure, Lament self-proclaimed himself the greatest golfer alive. He began heckling tour players during their putts, and after his dismissal from the sport, was eventually spotted at local courses taunting novice golfers from the bushes. The current whereabouts of Doug Lament are unknown, but still to this day, golfers across the country continue to report the disembodied sound of hissing as they square up to a putt. Hole number nine, Nut Brown Swallow. The front nine finishes in spectacular fashion with a magnificent 560-yard par five running up to the clubhouse, which offers the ideal spot for spectators to watch play from the veranda as they enjoy one of Myers Creek's signature rum and root beer floats. Stretching along the west side of Lake Lundy, Nut Brown Swallow was not only the setting for a myriad of exciting pairings in storybook golf, which includes an albatross or double eagle, meaning three under par on a single hole, that or a surefire way to rig a coin toss, but also bore witness to a dizzying array of clubhouse hijinks and understrained buffoonery. One occurrence in particular took place on a spirit-filled evening in 1947 at the hands of Audrey Mannix, a 19-year-old strong-willed Hollywood debutante and avid golfer. Mannix introduced herself to Myers Creek Society with fabulous flair when she bared all in her now legendary late-night swim in Lake Lundy. Growing listless of her table's Bordeaux-induced gabble, Mannix, in an effort to have a bit of fun by upsetting club decorum and needling its fuddy-duddy members, retired onto the ninth fairway with two-time champions tournament winner Bob Kessel, who was 20 years old and unmarried at the time. Kessel wrote of the account in his 1988 autobiography. It was an especially hot evening, and the dining room was at capacity as usual. Jack Walrich was up to his old antics, this time animating the lobster on his plate in a drunken plagiarism of the tramp, while Jackie Burr emanated her usual air of supremacy, which she apparently applied that evening with a paint gun. Then out of the blue, the bewitching Audrey Mannix took my hand and whisked me away to the veranda. Not only was this completely unexpected, my only other exposure to whisking was with a Denver omelet. She hurried off into the moonlit night and ran out into the fairway. I followed. You don't not follow Audrey Mannix. Have you ever played strip golf, she asked. My entire body stiffened up like a board and I fell forward into a faceplant. I dusted myself off and we began the most important game of my young career. The rules were simple. Furthest from the pen lost an article of clothing. I remember bubbling over with excitement because Audrey Mannix was known throughout the club as being a dreadful golfer. Sadly for me, she had been practicing, and I soon found myself down to my silk drawers. I was shaking from embarrassment. Audrey, who was fully clothed, must have felt sorry for me because with one shot remaining each, she offered to switch our scores, so to speak, in an all-or-nothing raising of the stakes if I got closest on this crucial final attempt. I hit a flush seven that rolled within a foot of the cup. It was a thing of beauty. 
I made a particularly witty comment and started putting my pants back on as she addressed her ball. She drew back the club head and hit a gorgeous shot that landed just outside my ball. I instantly became giddy with excitement. She asked me to turn around while she tilted the score. I respectfully did so, but not without giving her a hard time about the shot, instructing her on her follow-through while I buttoned up my shirt. You want to make sure you don't turn over your wrist before impact, I said in a playfully gloating manner. My heart raced at the sound of her undressing, when all of a sudden I heard a splash. I quickly turned around to find a naked Audrey Manic swimming in Lake Lundy. Well, I immediately started tearing away at my clothes to join her, when last she stopped me. What are you doing, she asked. What do you mean, I said with a chuckle while pulling off my shoes. She smiled at me, cocking her head cutely to the side in that characteristic way that drove all her suitors wild, and ever so sweetly reminded me that I had won the game. It was a crushing victory. Join me next time as we grab a bite to eat and tackle the Myers Creek back nine. This has been a production of Thaddeus Ellenberg's Casual Friday. Written and read by Thaddeus Ellenberg. With an introduction by Nicole Kalasich and artwork by Adrian Lobel. This series is independently produced by Thaddeus Ellenberg and Will Scovel. To find more episodes and information, visit our website at casualfridaypodcast.org or email us at contact.casualfriday at gmail.com.